As Chuck just mentioned, our gospel lesson this morning comes from John chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. When I was at Moody, as Chuck just mentioned, uh, in college, I worked at the gym on campus. And you see, it was a, there was a great shift that uh, was coveted by some, not coveted by others, and that was the opening shift. Solheim opened at 6 a.m., and so you had to be there at 5.30. Um, the great thing about the opening shift is that most of the year, it was dead. There was almost nobody there, because who wants to get up and go to the gym at 6 a.m.? You also have to remember that this is Chicago, and about 50% of the year, uh, nobody wants to go outside really at any time of day, let alone before the sun's up. So the opening shift was great because I could do homework on the job. Um, That was okay, that was was permissible. Um, (laughs) But for one brief period of the year, uh, which just happened to be, ironically, the coldest time of year, the opening shift at Solheim was busy. Can you guess what that period of time was? (laughs) It was the start of the new year, uh, right after New Year's, when all the New Year's resolutioners were piling into Solheim to get their workout in at 6 a.m. And that lasted until about February 1st, right? Um, That's usually how it goes. And I wonder this morning if anyone here is familiar with that phenomenon with it when it comes to working out, you know, the commitment, the New Year's resolution, maybe it's something else, that fades by February. It fades by February. Have you been there? Why is it that we taper in our goals? What begins robust and full and, and a source of great excitement for us that we're gonna, we're gonna do something, we're gonna change, we're gonna grow quickly, I mean really in no time at all in the scope of our lives becomes thin, weary, and a source of, of anxiety and frustration. Just frustration. I just can't get my goals accomplished. Some of you this morning may be thinking about exercising and going, well, I've been going to the gym every day for 25 years. And that's great, but for the rest of us, and even for you, 
you have goals. We all have goals. We all have desires that we fail to accomplish. And friends, this is one thing when it comes to these mundane goals, like your fitness. But it's another thing when it comes to your character, when it comes to your discipleship. One thing that is abundantly clear in John 15 is that the Christian life has a goal, that there is something for you to do. This is put in terms of bearing fruit in John 15, and this is a common image in scripture, the idea of bearing fruit. Um, and we should ask, well, what is this fruit? Uh, this, this is a really deep me- metaphor. We'll, we'll unpack it as we go. But first, what is this fruit? What is the Christian to do? What is the goal? And the answer is that this fruit is the outworking of a life that's lived in obedience to God's law. And these fruits are the defining characteristics of that life, the defining characteristics. Isaiah 5 talks about God's vine, Israel, and says that he was looking for that vine to produce justice and righteousness. Galatians 5 gives us a much fuller list than justice and righteousness. We heard this a few weeks ago if you were here. It's this list that many, many of us know well, many of us have memorized, the, the fruit of the Spirit. And what are the fruits of the Spirit? Well, they're love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's quite the list. That's an impressive list. And I mean, when you, when you think about that and how all these things are interconnected and how weighty these fruits really are. We're not talking about your, your physique goals anymore. I'm confident this morning that all of us, looking at that list, identifying what fruit bearing is, know in our hearts that we struggle to meet these goals too. That we are all familiar with the frustration of failure. And we wonder in, in, our, in, in our lives why transformation, why growth becomes so hard. We're familiar, many of us, perhaps when we first turned to Christ, with this feeling of just being carried along in your growth and, and it just coming easy. But over time, continual, sustained fruit bearing is really, really difficult. You know, pastor, the pastor Tim Keller uh, puts it this way, that gravity is not just a directional force, it is also a historical force. That over time, over the course of your life, you're being pulled downward, (laughs) such as life. Downward force, all the time. And the only way that we can move upward is apparently with great effort, and we know this, because we fail to meet our goals. We struggle to to grow. We're familiar with failure. So the question that I have for us this morning, lest I beat you down with just this, this reality of the difficulty of, of fruit bearing, is, is fruit bearing possible and how do we sustain a fruitful life? How do we sustain a fruitful life? Not just bear one fruit, but continually bear fruit. Um, I don't, many of us this morning have resigned ourselves uh, from the possibility of bearing fruit. And uh, I want you to be honest with yourselves as we proceed about where in your life you have decided that fruit bearing, that change is not possible. Where have you resigned yourself to a character flaw? Jesus promises us in John 15 that fruit bearing is possible 
And not only that it's possible, but that it is guaranteed by God for those who are in Christ. But what are we to do to sustain a fruitful life? The first thing that I think is clear in the passage here is that it's really before we do anything at all, but is that we must define the relationship. We must define the relationship. Every parent, I mean, I haven't had a host of these experiences, but especially parents with adult children, um, meets their child's milestones with mixed emotions. We all know this. I mean, first steps come with fear of new dangers. I mean, it's a farther height to fall than, than when they're crawling. The driver's license, I mean, the fear ratchets up another level for sure. And with the, the pride of seeing, you know, your child maybe behind the wheel of a car um, comes even greater fear. I mean, really great fear. And a question of how, am I, how often am I going to see them? You know, how often are they going to be out? Graduation, sending off to college, deeper pride, more pride, deeper fear. First house, first job, marriage, whatever order that comes in. Um, deeper pride, deeper fear. Pride in these moments, in these milestones, is always mixed with anxiety and fear. And the question that I think we really ask ourselves in these moments, and I can say this as a child, as well as, as a parent of a, of a young child, but I know that the question we're really asking underneath is what is going to come of the relationship in light of this? What's gonna happen? Things are changing. What is my relationship with my son or daughter, with my mom or dad? What's it gonna be? I wanna propose to you this morning that uncertain and undefined relationships pull us down. And that uncertain and undefined relationships can never be the foundation of a fruitful life. So the first thing that we need to do to proceed, to sustain the fruitful Christian life is to define the relationship. You could think of it uh, just briefly another way. Rocky soil does not yield long-lasting plants. And the relationship is that soil from which any fruit bearing will grow. We need to define the relationship. In the dating world, this is called DTR, um, just so you know. We need a DTR. And John 15, as it so happens, is a DTR between Jesus and his disciples in which the relationship is defined. Jesus spells out for his disciples who are worried and anxious and fearful about what the future of this relationship is going to be, what it is. He says, this is who you are to God. This is how you relate to him. And the first thing he, he fills that out for us with is that this relationship is established by God. Defining the relationship, the first thing we need to do is to recognize that it's established by God. And you know, a key to understanding this passage is that the, the image of the vine, I've already mentioned it, is, was not just a convenient horticultural image for Jesus. He, he wasn't asking the question, oh, how am I gonna help these guys understand what's going on? Oh, there's a vine, I'm like a vine. That's not what's going on here. You see, Jesus is drawing on a wealth of promise in the Old Testament. We heard that promise in Psalm 80 um, that was pronounced over Israel that they were God's vine and that he would tend to them and take care of them. But in every instance in the Old Testament where Israel is referred to as God's vine, it's their waywardness, their unruliness, their wild fruit that is emphasized, that they are not a properly fruitful vine. And there was a lot of anxiety in Jesus' day amongst the Jewish community 
about who the true vine really was, who was in, who had a relationship with God. And into this setting, Jesus speaks these words to about the most eccentric, odd group of 12 guys that you could have picked out of Israel in the first century. He says, I am the vine. I am the vine and you are the branches. God established, has established in the sending of the son, his vine, that we can participate in it. It's not that we grow the vine ourselves. We don't define it, we don't plant it, but God does and he has in Jesus. He establishes it and you know what else he says? is that you are in because the word of Jesus, in verse three, has washed you, has washed you. He changes metaphors a little bit here um, to highlight that as, just as an Israelite in the Old Testament would have questions and constantly be you know, in some state of uncertainty about their, their cleanliness, there were a whole host of laws that governed that, Jesus speaks and says, you need not worry about your worthiness to enter the presence of God. He is the way into as well as the security in the relationship. He establishes it. And then the second thing that we have to understand about this relationship as we do this, as Jesus does this DTR, this defining the relationship with his disciples, is that the relationship established by God is an organic relationship of love. It's organic, it's not mechanical. In the Bible, there are many images that describe the relationship between God and us, between God and his people, but we can't take any of these images alone. And I would suggest to you that if it were not for this image, which is Paul's counterpart to saying that we are the body of Christ as well, um, if it were not for this image and the body of Christ image, Christianity would not be Christianity. If our relationship was with God was merely as king to subjects, as teacher to disciples, then this would be something else but our relationship to God is far deeper than that. It's not a mechanical relationship, it's an organic one. It's not a show and tell relationship, it's not a watch and learn relationship. It's not an employee-employer relationship. It is fundamentally characterized by mutual indwelling that Jesus indwells us and we indwell him. We are united to him as a branch is united to its vine. Jesus does not just influence us, he enters us. It's an organic relationship. And it's an organic relationship fundamentally characterized by love. In verse nine, if you look there, Jesus says, he, he defines this, this the, the, the thing that, identi- that defines this relationship in this way. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. This organic relationship is filled with the love that the Father has eternally had for the Son. We participate in that. What's true of Jesus is true of you here, that you are loved by God. Jesus knows no other than the deep, deep love of God, and he shares that with you. He shares with you the love of a Father. So we have a relationship established by God, and we have an organic, loving relationship. You cannot bear fruit apart from a properly defined relationship. And again, an uncertain, unsteady relationship cannot yield a fruitful life. So the first thing we must do is define the relationship. And Jesus does that for us. Thanks be to God. He has brought us into this intimate, organic relationship. And this changes us. 
But I think many of us this morning would still, upon hearing this, be feeling the tension of fruitlessness in our lives, wondering, okay, that sounds awesome. That sounds beautiful. But why do I still struggle to bear fruit? What does Jesus want me to do? The marriage vows have been taken. I understand what it is to be married. You could think of it this way. But what am I to do now? How is my marriage to proceed? What does he command us to do? And he does still tell us that the fruitful life is not only possible but guaranteed if we do these two things. The first thing is that we remain in the vine. Simple. It's the only command in the passage. Remain in the vine. You know, a lot of times we treat bear fruit as the commandment here. Um, for those of you who are familiar with this passage, bear fruit is, is actually not the commandment. There's a logic to this passage that goes through abiding to bearing fruit. But abide is the commandment. We abide. Why do we abide? Well, we abide because we can't bear fruit on our own. In verses four and five, Jesus says, gives the commandment, abide in me and I in you. And that's just a promise there. I and I in you. I abide in you. Some take it as, as I abide in you. But as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I think that dependence, if there was, I don't know if there is such a you know, distinctly American dictionary, but I think dependence has gotta be one of the ugliest words in the American dictionary, dependence. Independence is held up as a paragon of virtues, right? To be dependent on nothing, to be your own man or woman, independent. But friends, everyone is dependent on something. And that's what I want us to realize this morning. If you fashion yourself independent of everything, you'll only be fooled as to what your source of life and energy really is, what it is that you are depending on. We all depend, we all depend um, I know very well, though, the frustration, the, the, the struggle with identifying as a dependent person. Um, if, if you've spent time at my home or anything like that, my wife knows this very well. Um, I've probably talked to you about the, the number of projects that we have going around at the house. Um, and I've probably tried to get you to help me or something. <laughs> but um, I truly believe that I can do any job at my house without help. I really do. I mean, I'm, I'm making fun of myself now, but even as I say this, I still believe it. I know I do. That I can get any job done as fast as the other guys, as the contractor, do as thorough a job and get it right the first time. I really believe that. But every time without fail, something goes wrong. Um, I mean, I've become familiar with the three trip rule to the home improvement store that many of you are familiar with. Um, it's honestly probably a five or six trip rule for me. And I just have to factor that into to the budget, to the time, all that stuff. But I really fail to do that because I really believe that I can do it on my own. I really do. Dependence is an ugly word to us. Nobody wants to be dependent. But that's exactly what Jesus tells us that we are. And frankly, we are dependent whether we like it or not. It's a question of what we are dependent on. 
And if we are branches and Jesus is the vine, then to, to be dependent on anything else will spell your withering. And that's the other reason why we have to abide is that it's, there's this sobering statement here. If anyone does not abide, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And that's scary. We're not going to dwell on it. But you cannot bear fruit apart from Jesus. You cannot bear meaningful fruit for God apart from Jesus. And friends, I would ask you this morning, have you sought nourishment elsewhere lately? What are your alternative vines? What do you think defines your relationship to God and defines your ability to bear fruit? The impact that you might make on others? What makes you a good and worthy person? What do you derive the source and energy for that from? What else is it? I promise that nothing else can sustain you. And Jesus is not being harsh here when he says, abide in me. He's not being selfish. <laughs> He's, it's for our good. And at the end of the passage, he says, I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It will be all our joy to abide in Jesus. There's also a question of how we abide. And if remaining in the vine is this second piece after defining a relationship of, of how we can sustain a fruitful Christian life. Um, I think we're, most of us are still wondering how that happens. And if we read the passage closely, I think Jesus gives us two ways that we abide or remain in Jesus. Um, what does that look like? How do we do it? And the first thing he says is that we need to digest his words. We need to digest his words. And in so doing, we need his desires to become our desires. You know, in verse three, it said, his word is what cleanses us. And it's also, we find, what trains us to know what we really need. Um, we are, frankly, like young children uh, who will cry for food but don't know how to feed themselves. That's us apart from Jesus. He does, a young child does not know the way to the food and they don't really even know what's appropriate to eat, what's edible. I would suggest to you that apart from Jesus, apart from his guidance, we'll digest anything. We'll take anything in. And Jesus tells us we need his desires to become our own. And that happens through digesting his word. He gives us the nourishment that we need that flows from his eternal relationship with God. That's the soil into us. That is the nourishment we need. You need to trust that he will take you there. His desires will become yours. And the way we do that, the practical way, is that we digest his words. Um, you, you show up. You hear the word of the Lord. I mean, we're... It's a, it's a blessing and a curse because we often misunderstand, but we have access to scripture that's unprecedented in the history of the world. And um, if Jesus is telling us that to sustain a fruitful life, to see real change, real growth, that you need to digest his words, then what are we waiting on? Why are we so distracted by so much else? We live in a media just infested culture. There's so much to digest. And I don't suggest that you can't read the paper, but what is it that you most delight in digesting? It should be the words of Jesus because it will transform what we think into what we need to think, what we really should think, and what will be our joy.
And then the second thing is that we need to digest his words. And the second thing is that we need his love to find concrete expression in our day to day. Verse nine to 10, Jesus tells us, or verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. It sounds on first reading like Jesus is saying, if you keep my commandments, I'll love you. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying here is that my commandments are the expression of my love. He knows what is good for us. He knows what we need. So he commands us. And true love cannot just flat out deny the commandments of another and decide to go our own way, to come up with our own system of commandments, even if we couch them in terms, in Christian terms, in Bible terms, whatever. Um, But obedience is another ugly word for us, frankly. We really only talk about it as a good thing for children and dogs. Um, But obedience is how we express our love to Christ and how we are reassured of his love for us. True love yearns for the realization of the other's deepest longings. To not obey someone that you love is either to critique them or simply to care less about what they want than what you do, or both. Most often it's both. And, but since the first rationale here of, you know, we don't obey because we, we critique, since that's off the table, since Jesus is speaking, what is it that you care about more than the commandments of Jesus? What is pulling you elsewhere? This is tied to what your alternative vines are. But friends, I assure you, keeping the commandments of Jesus will keep you close to his love. And in keeping these commandments, our fruit is born. Our fruit is born. So we digest his words and we keep his commandments. His love finds practical expression in our lives through keeping his commandments. Um, And then there's this other thing in the passage that is a word of comfort for weary souls this morning. And I don't know where this will find you, but the last thing that we need to sustain the fruitful life is to trust the vine dresser. Jesus says here that his father is the vine dresser who is actively involved in tending to the vine and to us, its branches. He is actively involved. How is he actively involved? Well, the word here is he prunes. He prunes. What is pruning? Well, it's not filled out, filled out entirely in this passage, but I would suggest to you that pruning happens through two things, the conviction of sin and suffering in our lives. With sin, the father comes with his shears and cuts away all growth that is not directed towards the proper and for which a vine and its branches are, exist. When we sprout undesirable growth, he cuts it. When you grow in the wrong direction, he cuts it. When your growth blocks out the sun, he cuts it. The father cuts us back. He's actively involved in the fruit bearing process. And when it comes to sin, those things that pull us downward, that I mean, 
that, that make the branch <laughs> fall to the ground, frankly, become too heavy for its own good and directed towards other sorts of growth, um, he cuts and it hurts. You know, we find that the things that we really delighted in and we enjoyed uh, are not for our joy. They're not what we need. They're not what will help us sustain a fruitful life. So he cuts it and it hurts. And he also works to prune through, I think, seasonal change to, to, to extend the metaphor a little bit, if you'll follow, that winter, winter is, is a season that really, you know, we hate to be in, but it's good for our growth that we get, I mean, sometimes winter is like rest, um, that you can recharge and, and be refueled by new life in, in springtime. Um, but winter is a season, it is temporary, and God works through that in our lives. When we feel barren, when you're, I mean, many of us this morning are asking the question, where is God in my life? You're, you're coming at this, yeah, fulfilling goals is difficult. I do have a hard time with that. Yeah, I do want to change deeply. I do want to be rid of my, my anger problem, you know, my bitterness, my jealousy, my cynicism, my critique. I do want to be rid of that. But frankly, what I'm asking is, where is God to help me? And friends, cutting hurts, but it helps. And winter is a season. I want us to bear that in mind when Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser. If you are tapped into the vine itself, the son of God who exists eternally with the father, who knows his love, who has it in him, then God will take deep concern for your well-being, deep concern. When you lose someone, when you lose a job, God is pruning you because God's vine is tied to God's glory. In verse eight, Jesus said that in this, my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God puts himself on the line and how different is a relationship when you know that the other person is for you and with you at the stake of their own reputation. God's glory is tied to the health of the vine. He is committed to it. Friends, one thing we know is that God is committed to his glory. We can be sure of that. So trust the vine dresser, that he is working for your growth and for your health as you abide in Jesus, as the love of God flows through you. Define the relationship properly, abide in him, and trust the vine dresser. He is surely committed to the health and growth of the vine. Let's pray. Father, this morning, you know our need for your word more than we do. You know our need for pruning and shaping more than we do. And so we trust you. Lord, in, uh, in my own life and in all of our lives, would you help us to see yourself at work? Lord, help us to remember what the relationship is how intimate you are with us, that you are in us, that you sustain us, that you supply our energy, that you nourish us. Lord, we trust you this morning and ask for more grace that we would continue to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.